So we've come to, to that last line now, taken up in glory. And this rounds out the, the second group of three and the whole six lines in this uh, mystery of godliness. Now some of this morning's message is maybe going to feel a bit like revision for those who have been coming on Friday nights. We've been exploring the theme of living in the last days and what we've been seeing is that the last days began with the arrival of Jesus when the time had fully come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, as it says in Galatians chapter 4. What that means is prophecies like Daniel 7 that we heard read this morning, they're not just about events that will happen in the last generation that will see Jesus return. That may be us, may not be. But if we're not the last generation, they're also relevant to us because we are living in the last days, in the end of the ages. And what we've been seeing on Friday nights is that imagery from that prophecy of Daniel pop up all the way through the Gospels and through the New Testament. I just want to give a quick summary of that Daniel 7 prophecy, the key ideas that are there um, Daniel, just before this, Daniel has seen this vision of these horrific beasts uh, wreaking havoc and uh, these beasts represent the nations of the earth and their rulers that are raging, not just raging against one another but against the Lord, against God's plan to set up his king who will be the ruler of the nations. Kingdoms of the world, fuelled by satanic power and anger, stands in sophisticated rebellion against God. Nevertheless, the Ancient of Days, the Lord, rules from heaven over all of creation. Losing my microphone here. Hopefully it stays. The Lord rules despite the raging of the nations, over every human and spiritual authority, both good and evil. In fact, these authorities, they only exist because the sovereign God has allowed them to. He's been overseeing their rise and their fall. And he sees and he keeps account of all that happens, symbolised by the books that were opened. The Lord has recorded every single act And from his throne then the Lord judges the nations. How does he do it? He does it by appointing his king. This king who is both divine, which is symbolised there by the clouds of heaven, and human because he's the son of man. He'll give this son of man dominion and glory and a kingdom so that he will rule all the nations forever. That's basically the plot line of the whole Bible. The Lord ruling over all the nations of the earth, bringing about his plan to make his son, the son of man, king and ruler of all. 
That scenario is also uh, described in many places. It comes up in Psalm 2. Have a listen to this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings... Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray that our new king, King Charles, will read this psalm and take it to heart. The sovereign God is dealing with rebellious humanity by appointing his son as heir, as king. The most common term that Jesus used for himself was son of man or often simply the son. He's clearly identifying himself as this son of man from Daniel 7. So we shouldn't be surprised then to see Images from Daniel 7 pop up all the way through Jesus' ministry and all the way through uh, the time of the church. I want us to note particularly the dynamics of verse 17 because that's the imagery that's specially used in the New Testament. The Son of Man comes with the clouds. He approaches the Ancient of Days seated on the throne and is given absolute authority with glory. A way to sum up these verses in a few words would be taken up in glory. The words from uh, our confession. If nothing else, although there will be other things, our confession of these words taken up in glory is a confession that we affirm the word of the Lord spoken through Daniel in the 8th century BC and we say it's come to pass. It's been fulfilled in Jesus and we continue to live in that fulfilment. There were things that Daniel saw that he was told to seal up because they were for the time of the end. Those things became part of the mystery of godliness that we've been exploring, things that remain partly hidden until now they've been fully revealed in Jesus. This morning we're going to look at three occasions in Jesus' life when the reality of this heavenly vision broke into the earthly realm. Three occasions when the Father declared from heaven, Jesus' identity. The first one was at his baptism. 
When Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew's painting a very vivid picture here. This word immediately speaks of dynamic action. The moment Jesus is baptised, there's this upward motion, almost as if Jesus is being propelled up out of the water. And this word, behold, or look, draws our attention upwards to see what Jesus saw, the heavens being opened. And it's no coincidence that our reading in Daniel 7 began with the same word. Daniel says, as I looked. Daniel had the same experience of the heavens opening, the veil being pulled aside so he could actually see into the throne room of the Ancient of Days. So this upward motion of Jesus out of the waters of baptism should make us think of the Son of Man ascending to the throne to receive his kingdom. But there's a downward motion at the same time, both a visible one and an audible one. The heavens open and the Spirit of God comes down visibly to rest on Jesus. The gift of the Spirit in the Scriptures is the sign of God's anointing of someone as a a prophet or a priest or a king. And the Spirit would empower these men to uh, carry out their roles in Israel, to speak the word of the Lord, to serve in the tabernacle, to rule over God's people. In Jesus' case, he's all three, prophet, priest and king, rolled into one person. Remember what we saw when we looked at that phrase, vindicated by the Spirit. All that Jesus did in his ministry was done not by calling on his divine power to override his human nature. No, he was the perfect prophet, priest and king who acted in the full power of the Holy Spirit who had been given to him by the Father. Along with the coming down of the Spirit are the words of the Father from his throne in heaven. And the Father's words here combine two key Old Testament passages. One which we saw in Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The other one is in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. This was the first time in history that these two passages had been brought together. The triumphant king of Psalm 2 and the suffering servant of Isaiah. Before Jesus came, all the Jewish rabbis and scholars assumed that they were two different people. Now the father corrects their wrong assumption. He says the king that he has chosen and anointed with the spirit will also be the one who will suffer and die for the sins of his people. So the upward motion of Jesus is met with 
the downward motion of the Father and the Spirit from heaven. The earthly and the heavenly realms have met in Jesus. He's the bridge by which God and humanity can connect and commune. In Jesus, God has come down and baptised himself into our humanity. And in Jesus, a human being has the spirit of God permanently dwelling within him. This upward and downward motion also tells us something of what's to come. Jesus came up out of the water, but he didn't keep going up into the heavens. That'll happen later. For now, he has a mission to accomplish, to be the last Adam, to succeed where Adam and all of us in Adam have failed, to pass triumphantly through temptation, to live a perfect life of righteousness, to give himself at the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. So this anointing by the Spirit doesn't take him up into heaven yet, but it leaves him here on on earth until this work of salvation is completed. The next time that heaven opens in this way is at a critical turning point in Jesus' ministry as he starts his final journey towards Jerusalem and the cross. From Mark 9, after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led him up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. Now we're told that this happens after six days. Well, what had happened a week earlier, six days before this? Well, there were two conversations in quick succession. The first was when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter responded with his confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the second, when immediately after that, Jesus predicted his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And then he had to rebuke Peter. He said, Lord, that shall never happen to you. So we see again in those two conversations, those two aspects that we saw at his baptism. The triumphant king, the Christ, the son of the living God and the suffering servant who will go to Jerusalem to die. And this six six day time frame is significant. Mark mentions it specifically because that's the time the time frame that Moses was on Mount Sinai before the Lord appeared to him to give him the law. Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain, the cloud of God's glory. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. 
Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Peter, James and John are in effect standing there on behalf of Israel, seeing the glory of God being revealed to them. But maybe that's why Peter suggested building tents. Maybe he was expecting they were going to be up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, so they would need tents to to live in. But here again we see an upward motion and a downward motion of heaven and earth meeting. Jesus goes up to the top of the mountain and the presence of the Lord comes down in a cloud to cover the mountain. And the glory of God is revealed as Jesus' identity as the Son is unveiled for a moment to Peter, James and John. And the Father affirms from his throne what he declared at the baptism, but this time with a slightly different emphasis. This is my Son, my beloved son, listen to him. That ties in with what's just been happening. Moses and Elijah have appeared and they've been talking with Jesus. Has Jesus been listening to them or have they been listening to him? Why Moses and Elijah? Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. The two main ways that the Lord spoke to Israel. And Jesus is here, the word in flesh, and he's come to fulfil both. Both Moses and Elijah had an experience on a mountaintop. For them, it was Mount Sinai. It was called Mount Sinai in the time of Moses. By the time of Elijah, it was known as Mount Horeb, but it was the same mountain. Both of them stood on the rock and the Lord passed by and there was wind and fire and earthquake and the Lord revealed his glory to them and spoke to them and sent them back down the mountain to serve his people by bringing them his word. Moses had just brought the people out of slavery in Egypt. He'd confronted the king of Egypt. He'd uh, defeated Uh, The Lord through him had defeated the gods of Egypt. Elijah had just come from confronting the evil Israelite king Ahab and he'd come from a contest where the Lord had defeated the prophets of Baal, the god of the local Canaanites. While Moses was on the mountain and the Lord was establishing his covenants with Israel through giving the law, at the bottom of the mountain the people were worshipping a golden calf. Well, while Elijah was on the mountain, he complained, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. But he was told that even though most of the Israelites had given themselves over to idolatry, the Lord's covenant still stood with his people. So Moses and Elijah 
stand as great champions of the Lord's covenant with his people, with Israel. And both of them in that way pointed forward to Jesus. So the point of this experience on the Mount of Transfiguration is if you listen to Moses and if you listen to Elijah, how much more imperative is it that you now listen to the Son himself? He's about to establish a new covenant in his blood and he's going to defeat the gods of this world once and for all. So we come then to the third time that the Father spoke from heaven, a few days before the cross. I won't read this out because we we heard it read by Wendy. This is the passage that we also looked at two weeks ago, if you remember. Uh, The Greeks came, they wanted to see Jesus. He didn't grant their request because the time of his preaching ministry had come to an end and it was now the hour, verse 23, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, referring to Daniel 7. Now how will this happen? How will the Son of Man be glorified? How will Jesus be glorified? Well, not how we might expect. The next verse he says that he must be like a grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies in order to bear much fruit. Now in this scenario there's also an upward and a downward motion but this time it's a bit different to the others. Again we see the Father opening the heavens and speaking so there's the downward motion from the Father on his throne, but Jesus' trajectory here is also downward, not upward. He's not ascending out of the waters of baptism or up to a glorious mountaintop. He's about to descend down into death. While he'll be physically lifted up, nailed to a cross on the top of Mount Calvary for everyone to see, this lifting up will actually be a descent, descent into the depths of the earth through the darkness of our sin on our behalf. The full wrath of God will be poured out. He'll go to hell in our place and his body will end up cold and lifeless on a slab in a tomb. It's only once He had paid in full for the sins of his people and for the whole world. Only once that wrath of God was completed, only once his sacrifice uh, was declared sufficient, only then would the Father raise him up to glorious new life in his resurrection and lift him up to the heavens again to be with him on his throne. See, when the Son stepped into this world and was manifested in human flesh, as we've been confessing, he was deliberately choosing a path to glory that included the cross and the tomb. In theory, as he said to Peter in Gethsemane, he could call at any moment on legions of angels to save him from death. Instead, he prayed, Father, not my will but your will be done. 
He remained true to his father's will and to what the scriptures had said would happen. He chose a glory that would come through suffering. He chose to receive from his father dominion and kingdom in which all people will serve him, not because of his exercise of raw power, but because of his great love in laying down his life for them. When John, in the book of Revelation, was privileged to revisit Daniel's vision of Daniel 7, he saw the Father on his glorious throne, attended by living creatures and angels and 24 elders on their thrones, but he found that the Son of Man was portrayed as both the Lion of Judah and a Lamb that had been slain. Again, this dual image of a conquering king, the Lion, and a suffering servant, the Lamb. The Lamb came up to the throne of God and took the scroll from the Father's hand, meaning that he'd received his kingdom. And then he sat down on the throne with the Father to reign with his authority. So in Daniel's vision, all we were told is this Son of Man will receive a kingdom. Now we see the basis on which he's qualified to receive it, his humble, self-giving death for sinners. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals not because you're the eternal son of God or because you've exercised your power for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. See how Jesus, by being lifted up on the cross, would draw all people to himself. His blood, his death was the price paid to ransom people out of every tribe, language, nation and people. Now, we can't ignore what Jesus said in the middle of talking about his own suffering and his own glory. Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Now this is a hard saying from Jesus. Love and hate are the strongest of human emotions. We can't get around this by trying to come up with alternative definitions for these words. The word for love is the same one that Jesus used when he said to Peter, do you love me? And the word for hate is the same one he used when he said, the, world's, the world hates me and you will be hated by all. So the word here for hate doesn't mean just love something a bit less than something else. But notice, notice the qualifier. He who hates his life in this world. 
He's not speaking about physical life on this earth. World here refers to the prideful system of human empire building, of the nations that are raging against God, humanity's corporate rebellion against the kingdom of God. So he's not speaking about hatred for life itself, but hatred for a life that's bound up with and following the ways of the world, the world's pursuit of glory apart from God. So the world says that the path to glory is to love your life, to live for yourself, to climb to the top while stepping on others, to pursue pursue your career and your security and your self-worth, to dream your dreams and achieve whatever you desire for yourself. Build your own empire in which you are sovereign. What does Jesus say about that path? He says, if you love your life, you'll lose it. And lose isn't a strong enough translation here. It literally means destroy it. What the world claims will bring glory actually brings destruction. And what the world considers foolishness giving your life for the sake of others, that's the true path to glory. We know this is true because Jesus demonstrated it. He's not speaking abstractly here. This is what he is about to go and do. In love for us, he hated and rejected life in this world, a life of self-glory, instead seeking the glory of his Father. And as a result, he was then raised up to glory by his Father. So see his call to us. If we say that we serve him, if we call him Lord, then he says we must also follow him, meaning take the same route as him. Wherever he is, there we will be. He says, Jesus' route to glory through self-denial and suffering must be our route too. If we follow him, it will be the place of self-denial, the cross and the grave, if we are to also sit with him, with his Father in glory. That doesn't mean that we pursue suffering as if it has some kind of merit in itself. We're not to be like some, some early Christians who came to the Roman governor and they demanded that they be executed because they thought it would somehow earn them a better resurrection. We don't pursue suffering and we don't pursue glory. We pursue the suffering and glorified Jesus. And we go with him on that path. We also need to be clear, Jesus, in doing this, he didn't just set an example for us to copy. He doesn't say, I did it, so that you can see that you can do it too. He didn't just make a way or mark out the route. He is the way. We need to be united to him just as he united himself to us. Our old self must be crucified, put to death and taken off like the filthy rags that they are. And we must by faith 
put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We must be united with him in a death like his, in which he took all of our sin and our guilt, if we are to be united with him in a resurrection like his, a resurrection where he now gives to us his perfect righteousness. So we can say the words of this confession of the mystery of godliness all we want. We can mouth the words but it will just be empty words unless we've come to him to die, to die to ourselves and to live to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at your love and your grace that you would make such a great sacrifice for us. You could have chosen to stay in the realms of glory at your Father's side, reigning over the universe just on the basis of the fact that you are the true eternal God, yet you humbled yourself, you became a servant and you became obedient even to death on a cross. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for what you have done for us and we ask that you might uh, fill us anew by your Holy Spirit and enable us to be people who glorify you, whether in life or in death. May people see you uh, in us, in all we do and all that we say. Amen.